Hi, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 316 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Reclaiming Embodiment. It's an interview with Dana Papadopoulos. My name is Katie DePaula Silverman. I am the co host for this episode. And I'm the founder of IGC Coaching School and the author of At Least You Look Good. And I'm joined by... Richard Johannesson. Yes. So we had some really big insights and takeaways from this episode. We talked about rebuilding trust with yourself, getting back in your body, which is you can see from our title of our episode. We talked about listening to really what's going on inside of ourselves, being our own advocates, which us Lyme warriors know is so important holding our doctors accountable through the process. And really what I love so much was the end when we got to talking about creating this vision of what you really want in your healing process. So I thought it was super transformational. I loved chatting with Dana and I think you're going to love her story. Dana, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited to be co-hosting with Rich. We really miss Matt, but He's out there supporting us. Dana, we want to get started with your story. We want to hear the background. Where'd you grow up? What 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 was your childhood like? Where do you live now? Yeah. This is like first date status. So. <laughs> All right, you're getting the whole background. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I live now in Charlotte, North Carolina. I moved here about like remembering what year we're in. I moved here about six years ago. So I grew up the majority of my life in Middleburg Heights, like a little suburb in Ohio. So that's where I'm from. Um, And I am an only child, (laughs) throw that out there. So I just grew up with with, um, me and my parents. And um, growing up, I, I feel like I had a pretty, like not cookie cutter, like growing up, it was pretty basic. I wasn't, I wasn't um, like super sick. I was actually thinking about it today and I was actually super into sports like in high school. Like I, and I, sometimes I think back to it. I'm just like, what did I feel like before Lyme? You know, and I just, I just remember being in high school. I played volleyball. I was super into sports, like all throughout high school. I remember at one point doing three a days, like, and I mean, I don't think I had the best sleep, but somehow I just remember feeling like Wonder Woman or like that. I was like invincible. And so, um, I've always thought, I'm like, well, you know, like, was I sick growing up and not really, I never really went to the doctor, um, or anything like that. So growing up, I didn't really have any suspicion of, you know, like being sick or anything. Um, so, and then let you tell me when, how much further I need to go. But, um, it wasn't until I started getting sick at like around like 18 it was like my freshman year of college when I started getting symptoms that like weren't normal and were affecting me like every day like it wasn't just like a normal cold or you know like the flu um yeah that's probably around the time when I started like having like symptoms and I will say you didn't ask this but I think it could be really it could be relevant relatable to someone listening is I did struggle with an eating disorder in high school at one point I was 16 Um, I had, I was anorexic. Um, so I did get sick in that sense, but I was blessed to recover extraordinarily quickly. I did therapy for like a year. Um, my senior year of high school, 
and I was seeing like a physician nutritionist and seeing like a therapist. So, and I was pretty, and then I was good. I was fine for like two years. And then that's where like other symptoms came up that again, were not eating disorder related. We're not flu or cold symptom related. And it was like persistent. And so yeah. that was kind of like me in a nutshell growing up. Uh, yeah. Well, we, we definitely want to get to your symptoms and, yeah. and that part of the story, but before we go there, I'd love to know, because, you know, for those of us who have had Lyme and who've had long journeys with Lyme and for the yeah. people that are listening, mm-hmm. there is this be- before story and this before mm-hmm. version of us. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I always think it's so interesting to look back at like, what were our childhood dreams and what did we want before we got sick? Right. before this was like this sort of other player in our life. So yeah. do you remember when you think back to your childhood and growing up and high school years, yeah. what, what were some of your dreams and goals? Yeah. Um, it's hard in the sense that I did get sick. So young, you know, like, I feel like right at the stage when you're like ready to like start dreaming and figuring out what you want to do. I feel like I really didn't get to dream that much. Cause it was just like, I got sick. I started getting really, really sick my first year of college. And honestly, I wasn't really prepared for college. I didn't have the conversations of like, what did you want to do career wise? So I remember going to college, the first college I went to, I was undecided, you know, I was trying to figure it out. Then the second college I went to, I actually did have some type of plan. So I did um, start going to fashion school. So I went to Kent State University. I went to the fashion school at Kent State. So it was that, um, that was my second year of college. Um, I transferred there from Miami University of Ohio and I went there for the fashion school. And so, but then that, after that first year is when I got really sick. And I remember that second semester, that spring semester is when I had to like drop out because it had gotten so bad, but I did have a vision um, it was very small, you know, it was brief, <laughs> but I did have this vision of going to fashion school, going to New York and doing the whole fashion thing, which I ended up actually still graduating with a fashion degree. It took me six years to finish because I, I kept getting sick and having to drop out, but that was the little, the little vision to start. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Rich. So then why don't you talk a little bit about what brought you to fashion school, right? Because what Katie's asking you to do is sort of like build out what your inspiration, how did you, how did you determine, you know, that you wanted to become a fashionista or a fashion designer or, you know, someone yeah. with a passion for fashion? And how did you think you were yeah. going to be serving the world by, uh, by studying fashion? Yeah. So that's where it's funny because I, I wasn't really into like fashion growing up, but I did go to modeling school when I was younger. Uh, I can't remember exactly what age. I think it was like between like 10 and 12, I think I was in fashion school or modeling school. And I just remember having this really like like creative side to me. So I remember when I was trying to figure out what to go to college for, there was always just like this creative part in me. Like even in like high school, I really was drawn to like art classes and things like that. So I wanted to do something that was like creative and kind of like fostered that in me. And then, um, so I think that's what led me to fashion school. Like I was really creative. I loved clothes. I loved styling. And I think also 
I really wanted to like pair my faith into that and go into, and I, so like eventually I even started like a fashion blog. Um, and I tied my faith into that too. So I think to answer your question, it was just a really fun, creative outlet for me that like, I was just hoping to take. And I dreamt of like being like stylist for people on like red carpets. And I was like, Oh, that would be so fun <laughs> to be like a uh, fashion stylist for these celebrities and stuff. So yeah, it was just something that uh, it's like kind of like felt in me that I had like just a creative part of me that I could. So build out the faith piece with us, right? You said that you believe that your faith and your your yeah. creative passions and your and your and your and your aptitude were crossing over. So talk to us about how they were crossing over, and talk to us about why you believe this element of creativity was put into you so that you could serve. Yeah. I think we're all creative in a sense, like we're all creators of whatever, and we all have a creative side to us. Um, but for me, I, so I am a Christian and I became a Christian at 16, a very young age. I always say it's a total God moment in like how he found me and when he found me. Cause truly I believe if I had become a Christian at 16 with my faith, I probably would have died from the eating disorder, to be honest. Um, and it was really only my relationship with him that was like one of the things that like got me through like, you know, the eating disorder, just constantly telling yourself, you know, reminding yourself like who you were created to be. And um, so that really, so I had like that faith component built into me from like a really young age. And I knew like going through something really hard at such a young age and having like my faith being literally the main thing to like get me through. I knew that like, no matter what profession I did, or even like in the fashion realm, that was something that I was always going to like take with me. Cause like we live in a really hard world. Like we're all going through things that are extremely difficult, no matter what field you're in or what you're doing. And I just knew like I had this piece, this component that I knew could help other people who were also going through extremely difficult things. So fashion was like, Oh, I could, do this as my creative outlet, but like, I can also still share, you know, my passion, um, or share that like faith component in that, especially in the fashion world, because I mean, there's so much, I mean, there is, I mean, eating stores are prevalent in that world, especially modeling, which I did. And like, I could just see, like, there was a lot, there was a lot of like sadness and darkness there. And I just wanted to be able to bring light into that space as well. So then we, we've had a lot of people on this podcast talk about um, eating disorders and anorexia uh, mm -hmm. as part of their journey. It's, it's mm -hmm. been a pretty common theme that we've seen. Mm -hmm. um, and we've actually had doctors like Dr. Horowitz share with us uh, and, and, and as part of his MSID's um, um, diagnostic tool that extreme weight loss is actually an indicator of Lyme disease. And many, many people who are, who are suffering from these types of disorders, which are, are actually physiologically, not emotionally based. Um, but we've also had other folks. Uh, we, had, uh, we had this uh, wonderful model from uh, the UK talk about how she was encouraged to lose weight. She was ultimately, um, you know, strongly encouraged to lose weight. And it became something that, um, you know, allowed her to have a lot of success in the modeling community, but unfortunately it was immunosuppressive. So in your situation, mm -hmm. do you think that your eating disorder was in fact an eating disorder that was driven by a desire to have a particular body type mm -hmm. and that made you more vulnerable to the disease? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that you had been bitten by a tick earlier um, yeah. or perhaps were even, even managing cognitive Lyme disease and that presented itself as, um, as an eating disorder? 
during your uh, 16 year, um, yeah. during the early 16 years yeah. Uh, on Earth. Yeah, I've thought about that. Um, I thought about, cause I don't have the moment of like, oh, I got bit by a tick, I can see it. I know like, I do not have that. That's not my story. And sometimes, I mean, I'm even, had a lot of hypotheses. I think also like it could have been passed down. Like, you know, I, you know, you, I listened to Kelly Flanagan's podcast the other day and she brought it up. Like, you know, you can pass it through from mother to child now. Or, so I think that's also a possibility for me. And then I just got into situations that were extraordinarily stressful and it, you know, like brought it out in regards to the eating disorder. I know that I had it just because of the environment I grew up in. It was really hard, really harsh. And that turned into self-hatred so like it wasn't it was the eating disorder for me was like it was something and I mean you're 16 you don't consciously think of these things but you're in a an environment you can control and you're also being controlled in that environment so like as a kid what can you can control what goes in your mouth so you know I was just so restrictive with my food because it was just a form of Again, it's like something I could control, um, like when an environment that I couldn't control, but like, and, but the thing is like with addiction of any form, the crazy thing is like in the beginning, you control it, you know, but by the end of it, it controls you. Yeah. That's what ended up happening to me. Like in the beginning, it's like, oh yeah, you know, like I control this, but by the end, it's like, you have no control, you know? So it's a catch 22. (laughs) Totally. I I think, you know, it's interesting to hear Rich say like that this is so many people's stories that Mm -hmm. an eating disorder is often another part of the story of Lyme disease. And Mm -hmm. we'll keep talking about how those things connect. But to me, it's like, you know, when we have this relationship with our body where we're battling it in some way, and then something else comes in and invades our bodies, like we lose all control. And the irony is, you know, we're, we, we're trying to control things to begin with. So um, we'll get to, you know, recommendations and advice for other people, but, you know, looking at our environments and as, as maybe we grow up and, and have kids and are aware of, you know, creating environments in our bodies and both in our external worlds where dis-ease can't come in so easily and take over. So let's talk a little bit, Dina, about your symptoms. And you say that you don't know the exact moment when you were bit, you don't have a memory of that. You don't know if it happened, if it got passed down. A lot of people are in your position where they're just not sure, right? Yeah. So talk to us about when symptoms started, how did they develop? Like, when did this start to invade your, your space and your life? Yeah. So it was my, I say my freshman year of college It's my second year at like a second school. I started off at Miami university and then transferred to Kent state. And it was that first year at Kent state. I started having really bad digestive issues. Um, and there were kind of like two catalyst things that happened around that time or actually like three, one, I think the stress of like moving to another school, that was, that just a really, it was a really stressful time, hard decision. I went out of the country and I went to China for a few weeks. I think it was like six weeks. I'd went to China that summer. And I just remember coming back from China, like 
my digestion was like never the same. And I remember seeing doctor after doctor and they were like, oh, you said like IBS. But I was like, I know this is not IBS. Like I just knew in my gut. No. In your gut. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is not IBS. And I kept going to doctor to doctor to doctor. No one would believe me. I mean, you're 18, you know, no one's, no physician takes you seriously. Um, so then I get my wisdom teeth out that fall or that's winter break. And I, I always say like, I was never the same after I got my wisdom teeth out. And I don't know if it was like the stress or it, just, it could be a lot of things now that I'm learning, but that from that point on, it was like, I couldn't eat a thing. I dropped like 30 pounds within a few months. And I, and then people were like, Ooh, you have an eating disorder. I'm like, no, like I was like, I, even if I eat like just one grape or something so small, it feels like I had like a steak or like five steaks. Like it was just so painful when I would eat. And I just kept pressing and pressing and pressing doctors. Like, I'm like, something is wrong. I can't eat. Like I'm in so much pain. And so finally, and I was blessed to live in Middleburg Heights, which is really close to the Cleveland Clinic. So like I was going to the Cleveland Clinic, I, like, you know, they're one of the, have some of the top doctors in the world. And I was like, you do run every test. I was like, I was pushing so hard. And so finally my first diagnosis after finally, like just begging all these doctors to just test me for everything was gastroparesis. And that was kind of the first diagnosis I ever got. And I was like, oh, this is it you know, like I'll just cure this. And then like, we'll be fine. And then I tried the medications, they didn't work. And then it was just like, I just kept getting worse and worse. And then, um, like the diagnosis kept piling on. Like, I think it was a year after that I ended up in a wheelchair and I was like, what is, I was so dizzy and I got diagnosed with like POTS. And then a year after that, it was something else like Hashimoto's. And the year after that, it was like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's just like, that kept piling on because I just wasn't getting better. So that was kind of like, that's just, that's kind of what started it all. And then that was, and then it's been, that was around 18, 19, I'm 31 now. It's been like a 12 year journey of like the diagnoses just piling on. So how are you, how are you feeling during all of this? Like, I just see these like energetic bricks, like stacking on. Oh my gosh. You feel so alone. You feel crazy. I mean, again, because I was so young and I was just like, I mean, I just felt like it was like me against the world in the sense, like trying to get people to believe me, trying to get family to believe me. I mean, no one would believe me. Physicians wouldn't believe me. So the only, so by the, and this was like in, this is like 20, gosh, I don't know, like 2011, 2012. Like there's so many more resources now, but at that time there was nothing like the only resource I had at that point was then to like go to social media. So then mm-hmm. it was through like social media and the internet and all these like blogs when blogging first started coming about that I was able to learn about like gastroparesis and like pots. And I started finding like other pockets of women that were like dealing with all this stuff. I'm just like, oh, okay. Like I'm not crazy. <laughs> it's not in my head. Like there are other people that are really young and sick with these same diagnoses that are all struggling. It's just, you feel so alone because like, usually it's, it's, uh, I didn't feel alone on social media because that's the only place that I was able to find other people dealing with the same things I was, but out in the quote unquote real world, like in Western medicine and around friends and family, like you're just so alone and you just feel like you're just journey journeying on this, just trying to, you know, stay true to yourself and 
almost like bolster yourself up to be like, okay, you're not crazy. And then just trying to, you know, find the resources you can, you people you can to try and treat whatever you've been diagnosed with. Yeah. I think like believing ourselves is such an important part of this. Like, yeah, so many people question. Yeah. You have to come back to this self-belief. Yeah. Go ahead, Rich. So let's, let's talk about a couple of things, Dana, that we customarily see on the podcast. And one of the things that I always like to do is define risk. Like the risk of Lyme disease is generally a formula, at least general Stanley McChrystal in his book, risk, argued that risk is actually a formula. It's threat times vulnerability, right? What is our vulnerability and what is the risk? And as each side increases, the likelihood of, of us getting sick is going to increase, right? So on the vulnerability piece of this, uh, we've seen repeatedly that people who have traveled during some time during their life, that the travel is immunosuppressive. And you took a long trip to mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. Um, what impact do you think uh, that travel had on your immune system? And do you yeah. believe that was part of what caused your symptoms to, uh, to take off? Yeah, so I had traveled prior to that in the sense that I, I had visited like Greece at least like four times since that. I have family over there. I'm Greek. <laughs> My last name kind of gives that away. Yeah, um, Papadopoulos is a Greek name? Yeah, <laughs> very. Um, so I traveled internationally before and I had even been to the Dominican Republic in high school on a mission trip. I think we were only there for a week. So, but I just don't think my body was like acclimated to like, you know, like, like Asian food, Asian cult, like that whole, it's a whole other world. If you've ever, you know, gone from, if you've ever visited, like, cause I'd visit to Europe, but like Asia is just a whole other ball game. And so. I'm not quite sure how much traveling per se um, played into it because I traveled before to like Europe and Dominican Republic, but that maybe because like you said, I was there for so long, I could have been bit over there. I'm not sure. Um, I do remember growing up, like just getting bit in the sense of like, I was getting mosquito bites all the time. And my dad would joke, he was like, oh, you just have the same blood type as me, which I think was like, A, he was like, they just love us. <laughs> so like, even if I had gotten bit, like it was just like, oh, this is normal. but. Um, so I'm not sure how much travel is interpreted in it, but maybe traveling specifically to Asia. It was so there, just- there's another piece that I'm going to talk to you about on the vulnerability front, because we've had a lot of people, for example, my co-host became chronically ill shortly after undergoing a dental procedure. And I understand that shortly before you became sick, you had your, your wisdom teeth removed. So talk to us about that experience and whether you think yeah. that played a role in making you vulnerable mm-hmm. um, as a result of immunosuppression. Um, and, and more likely to have this disease take off in your body. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy looking back on that time. Cause I, I remember I was like trying to put the pieces together and I'm just like, okay, I know that this, this plummeted me like getting my wisdom teeth out. And I remember going back to the doctor. I mean, I mean, I remember at that point Googling, like, well, what happened? What are the, what could happen? And I remember I was just so, I just like look back and I'm like, how was I so at 18? I'm just like, man, girl, like you were smart. Like I should give myself more credit, but like, I remember Googling that, like about like the vagus nerve and maybe like that could have been like, you know, like, um, uh, gosh, what's the word just like ruptured or, you know, just like damaged in the process. So I remember going back to the dentist and I was just like, 
I don't know what happened, but I'm, I cannot eat. Like something happened after this mm-hmm. and I remember him being like, no. And I was like, well, did you like nick my vagal nerve? Cause like that can cause like digestive issues or whatever. And again, like it was just like a repeated pattern. Like I would go to these physicians, physicians, they would be like, no, I did nothing wrong. Or like, no, you're fine. No, you're making it up. You're just crazy. And that's basically what he told me. So I just had, I just like put it to bed since that. But as I've been on my healing journey, that is something I'm actually even currently looking into is um, I, and this is kind of like, I know like a taboo kind of subject in like our community about like cavitations. Like I've been told that I have you know, like cavitations and I've literally gone to three different dentists and they've kind of confirmed that. So I was like, okay. So I'm currently on the process of like thinking like, you know, maybe that could be another piece of my healing puzzles. Like if I, if I really, I was really sick since that. And I'm like, if I could maybe get these taken out, that'll just be another part of my healing. Like just as you know, you learn in your healing journey, it's just like you find these roadblocks or these blockages. It's like, if, and we just try to like, you know, play back the layers and get rid of those. So I'm like wondering if that could be, I'm currently on that journey of like undoing that puzzle piece and seeing if that could be something that uh, could help me heal even more. Let me ask both of you another piece of this. Uh, you know, one of the observations we've made on this podcast is the female journey is different than the male journey. It just simply is. Uh, and one of the things that we've been exploring in a little bit more detail recently is the toxicity of, you know, sort of modern life, right? I mean, we are swimming in a in a toxic pool and we'll talk about, we'll talk about uh, some of the physical toxins that we have to deal yeah. with. I know that was a part of your journey, but why don't you talk to me a little bit about social toxins, right? Um, and what it's like to live as, um, you know, as a young woman in our society and the toxins that are likely to be immunosuppressive as, uh, as a young woman living in, uh, in American society. So when you say socially, you just mean culturally? Is that- <laughs> However you want to define that, because I, I do think, yeah. I do think uh, as the father of four daughters, uh, I, I certainly look at the world a lot differently now that I have four daughters. I saw the world very differently uh, before I was a dad of, of, of young women. And I, and I think the pressures on women are very, very different. And I think social media has exacerbated that beyond yeah. Um, beyond imagination, and 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 I don't know if either of you watched the uh, the Netflix documentary, the the social dilemma, but that really gave me really powerful data to support the observations I was making as the father of young women. So I'm just wondering, and I'd like you to weigh in on this as well, Katie, whether you think there are social pressures that women have to deal with generally that are different than men, and do you think there is an element of toxicity that makes you more vulnerable and more uh, maybe immunocompromised? Than, uh, than maybe men in our society? It's like totally a rhetorical question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 100%. I think that the challenges that come with being a woman are incredibly different. And I mean, you're talking about like social pressures and the pressure to be thin and the pressure to be beautiful. And, you know, we can get into like Botox and filler and like all these other things that women put into their bodies that men not no men, but most men do not do. Right. And then there's birth control that you're put on at a young age because of whatever act, like usually not because of birth control reasons, like, you know, because of acne, because of hormones, because of PMS. I mean, they just pour things into our bodies as women, I think. So, you know, and then this was the first place I thought you were going, but like 
makeup and hair products and, you know, slathering your body with these perfumes and this and that. And, and so, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, Dana, but not that much older. So, you know, we more grew up in like the world of magazines and comparing yourselves to celebrities. Now it's, it's different. I, I want to say it's worse, but I don't really know. I do think that with the internet, we have more examples. So like, yeah, you know, it's not just these five women that everyone, you know, everyone in the world somehow looks up to. I do think it's diversified so much in every way in terms of, you know, race, age, body type, like everything. Um, and I think that, that I don't have kids yet, but like my friends who have kids, like they say that their kids are really about being different and about standing out and about being an individual. I do think that's different than our generation and how we grew up. I think you were really supposed to fit in and really supposed to look a certain way. And I do think the pressures of that are probably immunosuppressant. Like what, why would it not be, you know, I don't know how we study that, but I definitely think that that's a huge piece. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I feel like there's just so much, there's always been like so much pressure in every area, you know, like professionally, there's lots of pressures for women to be these like powerhouse women to achieve, 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 you know, but then there's also pressure to be the best mom. And like, it's just in every facet of our life, I feel like there's just pressure to just accomplish, 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 be perfect, do the best, be the best and look really good while you're doing it. And then also to your point, yeah, about so many things we put on our body that are just like toxic, like the chemicals, like I've since purged all of my products. I do clean beauty, non-toxic, just trying to eliminate like that toxic overload Yeah, from like products, medications. Like I don't like anything. Like I just try to eliminate as much toxicity like as I can, but yeah, to your point, yeah, socially and culturally, there's just also just so much like you said, immunosuppression is pressure <laughs> suppressing us because the pressure is just a lot of times it's just so overwhelming because it's unachievable. Clear, it's a hundred percent unachievable. And again, to your point, like that's just how we grew up. I don't have kids yet either. And hopefully that pressure is, but I will say I have seen like with the social dilemma, like even just kids now, like there is still that pressure, you know, sure. it looks a little different but there's this pressure to perform or have this many followers or have this, there's always that pressure. And I hope, I hope I can be a mom one day where like, I just alleviate that pressure and be like, you'll never achieve it. It's not realistic. It's not real. So, so let's zero in on social mm-hmm. pressures and, and, and social toxins. In a minute. Yolanda Hadid, who is, you know, one of the, one of the OGs in this community and certainly one of the great leaders in this community, by the way, Yolanda, we need you on the podcast. Yes. <laughs> uh, tangentially. Um, she, she has recently come back to the community. She talked about having to socially detox, talked mm-hmm. about having to take a break from social media. And most recently, she has shared that she believes that her time on the Housewives um, series was something that was socially toxic and, and had made her very sick. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about social toxins as women and not just in your relationship with men and culture generally, but how about in your relationship with one another? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I would say that like, you know, when we're concerned about everyone around us, whether people like us, whether people accept us, how we look, are we thin enough? Do we fit in? Then we leave our bodies, right? Like we were literally disassociating. And so we don't know what's going on in our bodies. I think it's interesting that when you talk to so many people, and I would say this is not just women, but we're focusing on that for this com- for this part of the conversation. So many of us are like, I don't know when I got sick. I don't really know when the symptoms started. Here's what I think. I've been trying to put the pieces together. How are you 30 years old, 35? I'm 35. How are you decades into your life and like not sure what exactly happened? You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of weird and like freaky that like, we're so aware of, and I think Yolanda is such a great example, so aware of everything else that's going around on around us socially that we lose sight of. And we literally disassociate with, with what's going on inside of us. And so, you know, that's why I think in part, sometimes it takes so long to, to, not fix ourselves, but deal with what gets the core issue. You know, I I talk a lot about this in my book, which is called at least you look good. Mm -hmm. But I talk about how I'm like very self-admittedly saying I was so focused on how I looked, you know, and then everyone else around me was like, well, you look good. You don't look sick. And it took me a long time to figure out I, I maybe can control what's going on on the outside, but I certainly can't control what's going on in the inside. And I need to get a grip on what's going on in the inside. So my perspective would be that socially and being so aware of and connected to everything outside of us rather than what's going on inside is a huge factor in so many women being affected by this. Yeah. So Dana, talk to us about, about um, you know, the social pressures you've had to deal with and what impact you think that played uh, in your journey. And, and, and I just want to tease the uh, folks because I do want to talk about appearance in a minute as well, but we'll get there. Yeah. Um, so socially, I feel like, so when I went on social media, I really... I mean, social media has been a blessing to me in the sense that it was really the, my saving grace and to find like resources on like how to heal and like what to do. Um, Cause I, you know, like I went to doctors and they weren't helpful. And this was something that I'll revert back to your other question of like being a woman and being sick and with that in like this society, not only is there like pressure, but there's also stereotypes in the sense I feel like being a woman and being a woman who deals with like chronic illness is like, you're so stereotyped in the sense of like, oh, well, like, oh, you're just being emotional or, you know, it's like, I just remember being told by so many doctors they are like, oh, you just have anxiety or depression. I'm just like, no, I'd be like, I'm depressed because of this. But I'm like, that's not like the root of this. So that was something that I wanted to bring up that like, I just struggled with like being a woman. Like, I just feel like I was stereotyped of like, this is all in your head. You're crazy. It's, it's really just your emotions. It's just like, you're just anxiety and you have like depression. I'm just like, which I think you get more as like, I feel like you maybe get more as a woman, but I could, I could be wrong. <laughs> so, so then are, are you talking about being gaslit by doctors or by everyone in general? I mean, because you did, when you were talking with Katie a little bit earlier, talk about on your journey, 
-hmm. people in your personal life not accepting that you were sick or not believing that you were sick. So yeah. is this just from the medical community or are you saying just in general, the people in your life were gaslighting you and not believing that you were sick despite sharing with them that you are? Yeah, I guess both. Honestly, if I look back at it, it was just really hard to get family and like friends to believe me. I mean, you know, it's still debated today is, is Lyme real? And I'm just like, I'm shook. <laughs> we're still debating that. But it's just like back then, a decade ago, like just trying to get friends and family to believe you was just like really, really, really difficult. And yeah, that was also, so yeah, being gaslit by the medical community or like doctors, but then also, yeah, like friends and family, it was just like, it was really hard um, getting people to believe you that like it was real or that you weren't like making it up. Um, that's so hard. Like yeah. that, to me, that's just like one of the hardest parts is like, and you said this earlier in the interview and I'm so glad we're just circling back to it, but like that, like our families don't believe us, like yeah. parents, like it's just so wild to me. And yeah. I do think that that's one of the reasons why diagnosis can take so long because if the people closest to you that are supposed to be your allies and I'm not blaming or shaming. Like I get it. If you don't, if you're not experiencing something, you know, you went through this rich, I'm sure once yeah. you actually got bit, you were like, holy crap, this is crazy. This is so, you know, I, I heard it from that, but to experience it firsthand is different. Absolutely. It is, it is, it is certainly a very different experience living that uh living that gas lighting experience when your when your doctors are not properly trained and they're certainly not sensitive, which is why I had to go on my personal journey of making sure that I wouldn't get sick because my doctors were simply incompetent. Uh, I, I actually couldn't even get an appointment with my doctor's office on the day that I was bitten. I called Matt. He said to me, call the doctor right away. I called the doctor right away, and the gatekeeper said, you, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Don't come to us unless you have symptoms. Oh and, and, and she and I got into a huge battle and I was able to get in later that week, but only to see the PA. She said the doctor wouldn't be willing to see me at all because I didn't have any symptoms. So it is a part of, you know, that experience. But of course, then we have the larger picture, which is, um, which is, of course, uh, you know, not being believed at all, which brings me to another thing that, you know, I, I really want to talk to you about. And Katie, you just actually brought up something that no one else ever has brought up before, which is, is this um, this disassociation in yeah. advance of being sick? And I, so let's let's focus on that because one of the things that we've been developing here at Sick Boot Camp is this concept of having an onboard diagnostic system, very much like a car. We have a set of um, of tools uh, that we've been born with that give us signals about whether or not we're engaging the behaviors that are going to be supportive or injurious to our well being, right? And, you know, we hear a lot of people say, you know, your body best. And, you know, and I'm like, well, wait a minute, let's let's pause on that, because I think we have so many things going on in our lives that are causing us not to be in touch with our onboard diagnostic system. And I think it's much worse for women. And I never again, never heard anybody say anything like this, Katie. So I'd really like you to develop this for us, that. As a result of the beauty products you were using and the, the this image that you were trying to capture and all these social pressures that you were dealing with, you actually had an out-of-body experience and you certainly didn't feel anything from your onboard diagnostic system if you're not in your body. 
uh, and having nothing to do with Lyme, but having to do with the cultural pressures that you were you were dealing with, which was, which is like mind blowing and brilliant. So please build that out for us a little bit more because we've never discussed anything like that on this podcast. Well, I think I really do need Dana's support to talk about a lot of this and like the eating yeah. disorder piece, but I can share a little bit more, which is that, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think that from a very young age as women, and I hope that this is changing, but like, we are told that we don't matter, right? Like we're told that what happens with our bodies doesn't matter. Like, you're barely educated on your cycle and what's happening in your body. Like I'm going through the process now of, of trying to get pregnant and like starting that journey. And I'm like, how did I not know all of this, you know? And like, how do you not, how are you not taught about your own body? So if you're taught, if you're not taught about your body or there's this implication that things are bad or wrong, or then you're, you're going to think that, you know, they should be hidden, they shouldn't be talked about, they shouldn't be celebrated, right? And so I think it starts as a, at a really young age. And then, like I said, like so many, it's funny, I was talking to someone the other day and she she was a bit older, probably in her mid fifties. And she's like, I just don't understand why all these young women are in your age, in their late twenties and their thirties are having trouble getting pregnant. And I'm like, because everyone was like put on birth control at such a young age, you're being fed hormones, not often, not even for the birth control. Right. And so that completely changes your, your composition. I mean, it's, it's literally changing how your body functions like completely. Right. So from a really young age, maybe 12, maybe 14, maybe 16, the light's really shining through right now, but, um, from a really young age, like we're, we're just being told by doctors, like, here, take this pill, mm -hmm. right? Like this will fix it. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for these fixes and, and we're trying to leave our bodies and not be in our bodies. And so I, I just think that that like disassociation piece is so huge. And my experience with eating disorder was like very short, you know, in college, like it, I, I, I wouldn't even really feel comfortable, like claiming that as part of my experience. But I do think Dana, that's something important to talk about and touch on because, you know, to, to like eating is like literally how we survive as humans. And for so many women to develop eating disorders at such young ages yeah, is like mind blowing, but it's real. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad we're talking about this because I have two points I wanted to say to piggyback off what you're saying. I'm so glad we're talking about disassociation. That has been just something that I've learned over the past like year. Um, I've been going through a lot of trauma therapy too, which I'm just realizing is just another layer of like part of my healing journey. That's like really helping me is like going through trauma therapy and just realizing. So like when I think of disassociation for me, and I feel like a lot of people in the chronic illness community are going to be able to relate to this. It's just like, you get to a point of your journey when like nothing works and like, you're just told like, this is going to be your forever. You have to, you almost like have you like throw up the white flag and you're like, fine, if this is going to be my forever, I'm just going to accept it. And you, you're almost like forced to disassociate and say like, okay, this is just right. going to be me. So like, I have to, it's almost just like you get to this 
pattern where it's just like, well, your body's going off. All these alarms are going off. It's like, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't know how to help you. I try. It doesn't work. So you're just a constant state of like being sick, but it's just like, okay, if this is going to be here forever, you have to, you, you'd learn to turn off <laughs> being able to hear and like, listen to your body. So you're just like, well, I've tried and it's not working. So it's like, and I would always tell friends, I was like, if I listen to my body, like it says, like, you know, your body knows best or listen to your gut. It's like, if I listen to my body, truly, I would be in bed all day. Like I wouldn't leave my bed. But I was like, nothing has worked. Like, you know, you get to like, when you've tried a lot of things and nothing's worked, like, are you in a really bad flare? You're like, I have two choices. I was like, I, it's like, you can listen to your body and just be bedridden, or you can try to, you know, have some semblance of a life. And like, when you do that for, when you have to do that for so long is what I did, like after a decade, it's just like trying to, then trying to go through therapy and try to heal again. And like being like, no, I don't want to accept that as my life anymore. And like trying to get back into your body is essentially what I've been doing for the past year and a half or maybe or a year of like trying to like, okay, figure out what my body is actually telling me. How do it, can I help it? What is it saying to me? Is this a physical issue or is this actually emotional issue? Is this trauma? Is this actually Lyme? Like, and it's just like, I disassociated for so long out of survival, you know, it's what we do. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm on this journey of like going back into your body. And it's just like, I feel like I'm not even shaming myself in the sense like that's what you do to survive sometimes when you're dealing with this stuff and you can't get answers and you try treatment after treatment. It's like you almost are forced to disassociate to survive. But in order to heal, you have to somehow find the journey back, like you said, like into your body. Cause like you're not gonna ever be able to heal without becoming like one with all of it. And yeah. that's something that like that's something literally like the Lord told me over the past year. He was like, there is no disassociation between like father, son, and Holy spirit. He was like, there cannot be any disassociation with you, like physical, emotional, spiritual, like it's all gotta be one. And he's like, you have to get back. I literally have a post note on my fridge from something he said, and he was like, get back into your body. And so that's been the journey for me. And I feel like it's a lot, like so many people can relate to that. Like of like, you end up having to disassociate to survive, but then in order to heal, you kind of have to go back. Reassociate. Yeah, you have, and that's been a journey for me, especially like going through like trauma therapy. I realized is also like when you've gone through trauma, like that, it's a whole oh. other layer. Yeah, it's like this uh -huh. message of like, you have to come back to, it is safe. Yeah. Like it is yeah. safe to be in my body. It is safe to be yeah. me. It's safe to exist. It's safe yeah. to share my experience. Like, you know, I remember like, when I was going through life coach training, which was 20, 2012, 2013 and 2014 was when I got diagnosed with Lyme. So it was like all happening at the same time. And in, in the course, like, you know, a lot of it's personal development, you're learning how to coach other people, but you have to like do these exercises with yourself first. And, you know, I remember like doing these exercises where I had to talk about how I felt Mm -hmm. and what my experience was. And I like literally did not have the words. And, you know, I'm someone who's always been very emotionally intelligent, but like, I truly did not know what feeling, like, I remember like Googling, like feelings, like what could, what could I be feeling? Like, I truly did not know what I was feeling. And that was partially, I think 
to you know what Rich has brought up here because of societal conditioning. And then you put on top, well, like I'm in pain. Why would I want to be in my body? Right. I want to disassociate. I want to check out. I want to, right? And so all those things happening at the same time, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, I will say this from a different, even from a different angle, like not knowing your body, like you were saying, like growing up, we're not taught these things or put on the pill. I'll even say coming from like a Christian background, like you're not taught about your body at all. It's bad. And like the whole sexual component, you can't talk about that's reserved for marriage. So it's just like, you put it in this box until that day early, you know, it's just like, and you are not educated on anything, hormones, your body parts, what they mean, what they do. Like, it's just like a forbidden topic. And so like, that's also been a journey that I've gone through and I continue to go through of like, God created me with this and these things and these parts, what do they mean? How do they function? How do they help me? How do they serve me? They're, right. they're healthy. God gave them to me. Like they right. have a purpose and they're not wrong. And to not, and to not be educated about that until I'm like 20, 30, 40, like that doesn't really make sense. It's like, we talk about I so many other things. And like, I would always say this to people. I'm like, I feel like the church should be talking about, like, you should be talking about everything. Like, cause it's like, if you don't go, then you're going to go to all these other resources. It's just like, I wish my parents would have had the conversation. Like my parents did not have any type of like sex talk or any, any talk around that, or like, you know, just like the female anatomy and the male anatomy body parts, just like, and if we, if we don't do that, like as in friends, family, in safe places and parents, like you go to other people and it's just like, I feel like that should be definitely to your point. Like we should be educated on those things sooner at a younger age and there should be no shame or condemnation around it like it should be something that's just like a normal part of healthy communication truly so let's let's talk a little bit about appearance and the pressures to have yeah. a particular appearance and the impact that that's having on uh yeah. the diagnostic diagnos- diagnostic responsibility i can say that word of physicians right yeah. So one of the things that I we've heard, uh, and, and of course, Katie has captured it brilliantly in her book, you know, um, at least you look good, yeah. is, is, is a phrase we hear from doctors all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering what your perspective is on having on the one side of the coin, the social pressures to have a particular appearance, mm-hmm. uh, and then going to a doctor who is now going to be diagnosing you and looking at you in part about how you look yeah. to determine whether you're sick. I mean, how, how does that sort of like, you know, because remember the doctor's getting information when, when, when he or she or they are, or, or, or diagnosing you. Right. And, and there are a lot of different pieces of that. Um, and if we're, you know, if we're, we're, you know, we're under these pressures to wear makeup and to have our hair done well, but we feel like hell, you know, what impact do you think that sort of conflict is having on the information doctors are being given when trying to help us be diagnosed with our illnesses? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I've even heard, or physicians have actually told me like, oh, well, you know, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, this is what you have, or, you know, we, we, I, I've literally had physicians be like, you know, we've reached the end. Like, there's nothing else I can do to help you. But they're like, well, at least you look good. Or they're like, at least you don't look as bad as you feel. And it's just like, well, do you want me to look as bad as I feel? It's like, <laughs> say like, I heard someone say, it's just like when, when you're dealing with chronic illness and Lyme, like so much is taken from you. It's like sometimes just making yourself look good or feel good. Like 
sometimes make yourself look good is like the only thing that'll help you get through the day. Cause it's just like, you feel so bad, but it's like, it, you know, like if I can put on a little makeup, if I can make myself look a little better, it gets like, sometimes it's like the saving grace that just gets you through that hour, that moment, that day. So then for it to be thrown back on your, in your face, like, Oh, well, at least you look good. It's like, do you want me to look, go around looking like death? Cause that's what I feel like. But it's just like, you, it's almost like a shaming of like, well, cause sometimes it is, it does help you in the moment with your mental health, you know? But, um, so I've literally had physicians tell me that. And I think to my point earlier, it's like half the battle is getting someone to believe you. But then the other half of the battle is getting someone to believe that it's really that serious. Cause even to today, like I'll tell people like, yeah, you know, like I'm battling Lyme and because it's so different across the board for so many different people, men, women, some people are like, oh yeah, you know, heard of it. Now I've had now, because it has become a little bit more accepted. I do have people that are like, oh yeah, I've heard of that. And then it's just like, no, but you don't understand. <laughs> I'm like, this wrecks your life, like in every facet of it, emotionally, physically, relationally, financially, like, so that's like also like half the battle. And like, it can point to your looks in the sense that like, well, they see you look good. So they're like, it can't be that serious, but it's like, you don't know what goes on behind the scenes. Like I'm in the bathroom for like three to four hours a day, trying to like detox and do enemas. It's like, they don't see the times you're like better ridden because you're like in a flare. So like, that's where like perception can play into it, where I think is another component of this is like, yeah, half the battle is getting someone to believe you. And another half is like getting them to believe that it really is that detrimental to your health and to your body and to your life and your mental health and everything. Like it really does affect every asset. And I get, and I, to your point, I guess, is like, when we don't look as bad, it's like, it's harder, I guess, maybe for some people to believe that it really is that serious and it really can kill you. Like it really can. Like if you, again, if you, if you deny and like, you know, we aren't trying to do what we can to like heal. So Katie, we've had a couple of uh, guests on this podcast who have argued that the best way of healing is from the outside in. Specifically, we interviewed Miranda Holder, who had a really, really powerful story. And, and, and Miranda's a, you know, a celebrity from the UK. Uh, where she said that it wasn't until she saw herself in the mirror and she saw how bad she looked that she knew what she had to do and she had to get herself together and start to look better to ultimately feel better and go on her healing journey. And right after that, we interviewed Mallory Green, uh, who's a, who's a, one of the activists in our community, and she told us exactly the same story. So again, we have this sort of like this paradox where you know, if you're going to a doctor and you are now trying to heal from the outside in and you want to look good and feel good. And, you know, there's a, that best-selling book, I think it was Jenna Kutcher wrote, uh, Girl, Wash Your Face, right? Where she had to get herself together in order to be able to go on her healing journey. So you're, you know, so you're trying to heal from the outside in, you're trying to look good, you're trying to use that as a vehicle for feeling good. But then you get to the doctor and you hear, well, you don't look sick or you look good. So give us that that piece of it, how how it may be even a you know a second cut where you're trying to get yourself together to heal. You want to look good, so it helps you to feel good. But then the doctor is now using that as a as a vehicle for arguing that there's really nothing wrong with you. Yeah, well, the, I think the book you're talking about, "Girl Wash Your Face," is by Rachel Hollis. I'm sorry, Rachel Hollis. That's and right. And it's actually quite controversial um, for a lot of these reasons that we're talking about, and. You know, I think, I do think that the out, what's going on on the outside can provide a wake up call, right? Like I talk about in my book 
And I think I talked about this on our podcast the first time that I started to get paralysis and I started to feel it creep up into my face. And I had read about facial paralysis. And that was what like was the final straw that motivated me to call a, a Lyme literate doctor and to get, you know, to prioritize this because I had been dealing with it, but like also sort of ignoring it. And, you know, I, I think it's sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, I'm sort of of the mindset of like, whatever motivates you, whatever's the thing for you, like, just go with it. If it's outside and you don't like how, what you see when you look in the mirror and that's what motivates you, fine. If it's what's going on on the inside, if you don't feel well, but in most cases, it's going to be a mix of the two, right? I think where we get really screwed up is when we think that what's happening on the outside is somehow a, a, the only indicator of what's going on. But I look in the mirror or I look at photos from my, of myself from when I was really sick. I'm like, I look so different now. Like I have so much more life in my eyes. I don't have bags under my eyes. Like I, you know, my hair is different. Like I feel different, but like, I also look different. So I, I don't know. I think it's a really tough conversation, Rich, to be honest. It, it is, which is why we're having it here, which is why this is turning <laughs> out to be such a cool podcast. So, so then why don't you take us on that diagnostic piece of your journey? Because we know that you had a long diagnostic journey. So why don't you share with us how many different doctors you saw yeah. And what your experiences were as you were going from doctor to doctor. And, I, and it's yeah. my impression you saw maybe over 50 doctors before you were oh ultimately gosh, diagnosed yeah. with Lyme disease. Oh my gosh. I saw so many doctors and went to so many hospitals. Like I said, I grew up in Middleburg Heights, um, Ohio. So I was close to Cleveland Clinic. There's also like university hospitals. There's just so many hospitals. I just, yeah, I just kept going from physician to physician for the better part of like, it was like 18, 19 when I started getting sick. And I, I moved to Charlotte when I was 25 or 26. So I think in that like seven, eight year time span, I guess, like I went to so many doctors with so many physicians. Like I said, I kept getting diagnosis, like diagnosis after diagnosis kept piling on because I wasn't getting better. I wasn't healing it. Like I said, the first was gastroparesis. Then a year later, I was dealing with like the dizziness, vertigo. I ended up in a wheelchair. I like couldn't walk around. So then they finally found out it was POTS. And then was Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, Hashimoto's disease. I mean, at one point they thought I had cancer. I had to have a bone marrow biopsy. Um, at one point I had fibroadenomas growing in my left breast. I had to get those like um, uh, removed and like biopsied. They were benign, but like that whole diagnostic journey was so difficult. And I, for the better part of it, I was stayed in Western medicine. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was just like given like medications and diagnoses with like no hope of like any type of cure. They're just like, basically I got to the point where like I had a laundry list of at least like 30 to 40 different diagnoses from like autoimmune stuff to like just random stuff. Like, um, oh gosh, like anemia, like just so many things. Um, it's hard to remember now because it's, like it's such a long list. But I remember at that time being like, again, like, I'm just like, okay, this is what I'm going to have to live with all these. No one's telling me any of these things are curable. Everything's idiopathic. There's no root cause. Like no one could give me a root cause, but I thought it was so weird. So I was like, I would go on social media. This is the only place that I could find anyone else who was struggling with these things. I'm just like, 
something in me was like, this isn't right. I'm like, how come I keep finding all these women, same age, same diagnoses, but like no one's giving us a root cause. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I'm like, the fact that we have all these similar issues, no one can figure out what the root cause. I'm like, there has to be like, this is like just some weird phenomenon. Like there can't be. So I remember moving to Charlotte with all these diagnoses and I, I meet, was meeting with some friends and someone throughout the throughout Lyme, they're like, oh, I have Lyme. They're like, you have similar symptoms to me. She was like, did you ever get tested for Lyme? And I was just like, actually, and I was told that I was, that I was tested, but now going back, I don't think I really ever was. I don't even think, I think they did the preliminary one. They didn't even go all the way to the Western blocks. They didn't hit enough markers or whatever. So finally, like it was a total God thing. And I ran to another girl who had like Lyme, had a roommate for a hot second, he had Lyme. And I was like, it just kept coming up. So I was like, okay, maybe I really do. So then that's when I went the more holistic route. So like Western medicine was failing me medication, everything was failing me. I was on so many medications. I was just treating, basically band-aiding everything. So finally I went to the holistic route and that's where like everything shifted for me. That's where I finally saw a chiropractor who was also <coughs> very in the sense that he did like infrared saunas, PMF machines. Like he was very, he did not just chiropractic work, you know? And he finally tested me for Lyme and he was like, you have Lyme. And I was just like, oh my God, the light bulb went off. I'm like, it makes sense. And how like Lyme would be the root of like causing like all like systemic inflammation, like all the things. Mm-hmm. So that is, so that was in 20, it might've been like 2017. So I didn't get my diagnosis for at least like nine years, I guess, after my initial symptoms. And then I went on the journey of treating my Lyme, then ran into mold, you know, that's a whole other thing, but yeah. That so was- Dana, this this, I know there's more, but this yeah. is a big deal. Like, so you've been fighting this, you've been dealing with all the symptoms, you've been living with it. You've been trying to accept it. You've been battling it. You've been trying to convince the people around you. This is real trying yeah. to convince the doctors getting this, these diagnoses are just stacking, right? Yeah. Like you're just collecting yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And then you finally get to this doctor or this chiropractor who diagnoses you with Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. How did that feel for you after all those years of fighting? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think it was just like, honestly, it's probably relief. I think it was a little, I mean, it was a mix of both. It was emotional. I wrote a whole blog post about it literally on my last blog. It was called chroniclystylish.com. And it was late. My title of the blog post was called like misdiagnosed for nine years, I think. And it was just like all my emotions poured into this blog post of like, the journey of searching for so long and like knowing, like, I always like hoped there was an answer. Like there was a route. Like I was just like, this doesn't make sense. I'm like, I didn't want to accept that. Like, you know, like this was going to be my forever, like all these medications and all this, you know, like not knowing why or having it. So I think honestly, it was like, it was overwhelming. Cause then like you get like, you know, treatment plans or it's like, okay, I have to, I have to fight, figure out this new diagnosis now and how I'm going to, but it was honestly like, I think more just like relief and like hope of like, okay, I finally have a route for like all these things. Whereas like, I just didn't before. Yeah. I'm always like, I, I just feel like a diagnosis can, if we let it, it can be so helpful and relieving and at least provide a map when we've just yeah. been like spinning our wheels, searching and searching and searching. And 
Then what happens is you take the energy that you've been using towards figuring out and fighting and trying to get people to believe Mm -hmm. and you shift it to actually healing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the importance of diagnosis and the impact that has now on, um, on validation for you, mm-hmm. meaning you now have an understanding of what's wrong with you yeah. and anyone who's saying to you that it's all in your head is now background noise and, and, and the impact that that has on the disassociation, meaning are you now in touch with your onboard diagnostic system? Are you now feeling much more comfortable with reading your body signals? And is that one of the things that's helping you to heal? Let me think about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Learning that I had Lyme again, helped me like figure out like that was like the root. So it was like, rather than before I was treating all these symptoms. Now I had a root diagnosis that I could like get at. And so that, that could like alleviate like everything else. So I just know, like I was able to, I started being able to like come off of medications because like finally treating the root route, like all these medications are like treating the symptoms. Um, so getting that diagnosis was really helpful. Cause I was like, I'm not having to just like, again, like bandaid and treat the symptoms. Now I could like treat the root. Um, I don't think that answered your question though. Repeat your no, question. No, it, it does. It, it does answer the question, but see, but yeah. I, I think we really have to talk about why gaslighting is so dangerous. Uh, I mean, look, it, it's, it's bad when we're gaslit by anyone, but I think it's particularly dangerous when, when we're gaslit by doctors. Uh, and the reason yeah. it's dangerous is we start to lose faith in our own body signals. I mean, like I never even thought of it until Katie pointed out that we may even leave our body altogether. But let's yeah, not yeah. let's let, let's stay with the piece where we're in our body now and we have a diagnosis and we just don't we're not we don't believe our signals. And we get to the point where maybe we're we were where Katie was, where she's going through her training and she's and and, and she is a, a really smart young woman and she is a, she has very high EQ as well, but she doesn't know how to feel. Right. I mean, she's lost yeah. touch with how to feel and now researching how to how to feel. Does a diagnosis change that for you? Does it put you in a position where you now feel more comfortable in your own skin? And are you now in a position where you have a better capacity to read your own body signals? Yeah, now I do. But I will be very honest and say it didn't happen until this year. So like that was my diagnosis, like what, 2017. And I think because it was just so new and so fresh and honest. Honestly, I was still disassociating at that point. It's like, it was just another, di- like it was a diagnosis. It was the right one. It was finally the one I needed, but I still had disassociation in the point where like, I couldn't really, I was like trying to listen to my body, but I think I just been disassociated for so long. It really wasn't until this past year when I had a situation where like, it got to the point where I was detoxing too much. And like, it got to the point where my body was like, if you don't stop, I'm going to stop for you. And my body did a full on stop. This literally was this summer being totally transparent of like, and, and it got to a point where my body was like, you have to listen to me now or else you're in trouble. And I think like to your point, you said earlier, Katie was like, when you've been in pain for so long and like, it's just like, when someone asks you like, how do you feel? Or I, oh my God. Yeah. I've been going through this emotional trauma class and they're like, 
get in touch with your body. What is your body saying to you? And I'm just like, I don't want to listen to my body. Like my body's saying it's in pain. Like my body is screaming at me. Like, I don't want to feel that. Like, why do I want to sit in that? Um, but it wasn't until this summer where like my body did a full stop. It was like, it's time. Like, it's time for you to listen to me. It's time for you to not run. It's time for you to not hide. And it's time for you to stop. Um, and, or else like, you know, like you're never, it's just was like, it's time. (laughs) what, What was different about this summer? So that's where I'm sure we'll get to it at the end, but I actually started treating my Lyme with, um, bee venom therapy. And I also was treating my gut at the same time. And so as like, you've heard with my story so far, like my first symptoms were gut related. Um, Mm -hmm. and so that's been my biggest issue throughout my whole journey is like my gut. And so I knew I, I, that's been an issue for me and I'm, I'm still healing it right now. Um, but I was trying to do two protocols at the same time and I couldn't mitigate the die off. So I basically put myself in this extreme, like, and so like unconsciously or like, and not, or not intentionally, I put myself in this like endotoxic state and it like full on flare and basically it like it capsized me and it was just like you cannot mitigate like the die-off but it's because I hadn't learned to be in tune with my body of like what was too much especially Mm -hmm. when you're in pain like when you you develop a high tolerance for pain and you develop Mm -hmm. a high tolerance for hard crap going through this stuff so it's just like I just kept pushing and pushing and not knowing when the line was too far, just because of like, again, like severe disassociation, not being able to read your body, not knowing how to listen to it when it's like, that's too far. But it's just like, I was so disassociated. I, I was used to pushing and pushing and pushing, whether it's, you know, pressure from so many things, you know, like going back to, is it societal pressure? Is it the pressure of pressure of not wanting to feel pain, just want to get out of this season of sickness. It's like a lot of pressure, but I think it was, came down to not being able to hear and listen to my body just because I had been disassociated for so long. So I can say now I'm at a place like I feel my body now and I don't want to run. Like I Mm -hmm. feel I can listen to it. I know what it's telling me. I'm detoxing beautifully. Like I like it. Well, I say beautifully. Like the, it sucks detoxing, you know, a little, but it's just like, I, I know what my body's saying to me. I know it, what it needs. I know what it, what to do when it doesn't feel well. And like, that's been probably like the biggest blessing for me over the past year is getting back in touch with my body and my emotions to not run from them. And I think that is just such a big healing part for anyone of us dealing with like chronic illnesses, like, again, like returning back to your body, which can be really scary. It can be really scary, but I think it's a really big part of the puzzle for a lot of us that have been sick for so long. Yeah. I want to, can I throw something in here? Please. I'm going to go out on a limb here, Rich, but, um, there's, I think it's sex in the city. There's this quote around, like, it takes half the time that you dated someone to get over them, like after a breakup. Mm -hmm. And when you were asking Dana about, you know, re-embodying, like getting back into her body and the diagnosis, and is there a connection there to me? Like, it's like, you're rebuilding trust with yourself. So 
it could take a year, it could take five years, but like, it's not a surprise to me that if she was sick for 10 years, mm -hmm. that like, it's taken you five years or four years, right. To, to rebuild that trust with yourself. And so it's not an overnight thing, but it is like a relationship. We have a relationship with our bodies, just like we have a relationship with our parents or our partner or our kids or our siblings or whoever, like we have a relationship with our own body. And when the relationship has been unhealthy for whatever reason, and in multiple ways, of course that requires healing. And of course it's going to take time. And like, you know, hopefully people inside our, our world and our community hear this and they're like, okay, like class, you know, she's taking a, a emotional healing class and there's trauma piece and there's this, and there's, you know, the physical healing and there's the V-Venom, like it's so many things, mm -hmm. right. People inside of this world know that like, it's not, it's like normal. Right. But sometimes that's what it takes. Just like it, it might take a lot of time to heal from a heartbreak. Like I think the experience we have with our bodies is like the biggest heartbreak of all, like losing trust in ourselves. And, and I of course agree that medical gaslighting is, is the worst thing in the world. But what I'll add to that is like, we have to look at how we gaslight ourselves and like, we have to be our own advocates. We're taught, taught that doctors are God or like that that's the role that they play in the world. Right. Um, but I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all anymore. And so we have to remember ourselves and remember our bodies and be like, you know, aware of this, this entity that is part of us, but we also have a relationship with it. And that relationship can be embodied and it can be healthy or it can be completely disembodied and detached and disassociated. And that's a Lyme thing and also not a Lyme thing, right? Like there's a lot of things that can take people out of their bodies, but obviously Lyme is a huge one. So Kenny, I, I think, you know, just in, again, in the spirit of a, of a Lyme podcast and the, and the challenges that we have uh, in this community, uh, you know, the, the, the challenges are starting to pile up here, right? So the first challenge that we all have is, you know, the industrial medical complex lies to us and tells us, they will diagnose us and they will treat us and they don't need our help and they don't need our input, right? So we begin with this sort of, um, you know, this worship uh, relationship with doctors. And, you know, we've talked a lot of people, you know, from different cultures. I, I, I can't speak for the Greek culture, but I can tell you as, as an Italian American, we worship doctors. I mean, my mother's, my mother's perspective was you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, or you're a loser, right? That's it. I mean, literally worship these people, right? And that's how we were raised, you know. So we also had this this cultural overlay, right? But then we have then we have the second issue, right? Which is not, not only not only do we have this, you know, this this industrial medical complex, we then have uh, we then have these um, these poorly trained people. They don't know anything about Lyme disease. Literally nothing, right? And if there is somebody that knows something about Lyme disease, you got to wait three years to see that doctor, right? So that's not going to work for us. Then we have this diagnostic testing that sucks, right? It just sucks. Right. Nothing is good about diagnostic testing. And then the only thing that really does work, which is our onboard diagnostic system, our body signals, and we're, they're beaten out of us, so we don't listen to them. So how can anybody heal from this disease when we have 
an unhealthy medical complex. We have incompetent doctors. We have testing that sucks. And they beat out of us the onboard diagnostic system. I mean, how do we get better? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that's and a big question. And so, yeah. but, of course, but of course, the answer really is we have to go through a process that you two are so beautifully describing, which is we have to get back in touch with ourselves. We have to learn about ourselves. We have to you know, learn about our bodies and we have to now start to embrace feeling what we've been ignoring, right? We, you know, and, and one of the things that I found to be really powerful, you were just talking about as you're going through your, your, your trauma training, Donna, uh, Donna Dana, is, um, is, that, is that you were, you, were, you were disassociating and therefore you didn't want to feel the pain, but pain is a signal. Right. And it's an important signal and it's one we need to feel and it's one that we have to learn how to manage but you were yeah. you were you, you weren't even feeling it anymore right so you're you know, numb so yeah. you, you are you are numb right so so you know part of the things that we've observed here in the podcast and i'd really like to you know get your input on this uh and we've actually just created a framework that and i recently we we're calling it the harm framework where the people that we see are, are successful on this podcast and healing is they essentially go through a four-step process with their doctors or not. So the, the, the first step in this process we've observed is a prehabilitation process where you are identifying all the steps you need to go through to get back in touch with your body. You have to go through a process of detoxing, physically detoxing, emotionally detoxing, spiritually detoxing, where you're now cleansing your body and getting your body ready for a fight, you know, because you wouldn't go to war if you didn't go to basic training. You wouldn't play football if you didn't go to, uh, you know, to a, a, a camp. I mean, everybody gets ready for this, but when we're going to, you know, war with Lyme disease, we don't get to the place where we're ready for it, right? Then you take a second step in the A and in our um, observation or our framework is assist, right? And we stay away from the word kill because it's our immune system that ultimately has to win the day. But we want to assist our immune system by reducing the microbe load, right? And if we do that too aggressively, as you know, you've just you know, talked about, Dana, uh, you know, you, you'll become toxic, right? And we've had people on this podcast that said, you know, they they were part of suck it up culture and they just killed and killed and killed and they became yeah. wheelchair bound, right? They became sicker than they were before, right? So you have to learn how to assist, but you can't do that if you're not reading your body signals and you can't do that if you haven't gone through this prehabilitation or this preparation process. And then after you go through the kill process, then you have to go through rehabilitation, right? This is a traumatic experience that, you know, going through this process is traumatic. And there are going to be all kinds of all kinds of brain retraining and, and, and physiological, you know, yeah. rehabilitation you have to go through. And then, of course, we have maintenance, right? But we now have to learn how to maintain this because as the car is going down the road, you're going to be living life and things are going to come up. And, and what we see with the people who are succeeding is they seem to be going through that four step process. Um, and, and if they miss any of those steps, they have to come back and do it again. But that seems to be what we're seeing here. And I'm just wondering, Dana, whether or not this is consistent with what you're seeing and would you have done this would you have done this journey differently if you had known about the, those four steps that seem to be the successful steps uh, yeah. before you started the journey yeah well even with that analogy i'm like well i i i have a perfect case study for that in the sense of like i detox and then like that i got to that second part the assist and i couldn't assist because i couldn't you know read my body um so because i was detoxing too hard um, right. So you, so you, you, so you went through a process of physically detoxing, yeah. but you didn't go through a process of 
socially and spiritually and emotionally detoxing. And that was just as important as the yeah. physical detox. So people think nice. if, yeah. I, if I can rid my body of this, that's enough. But as it turns out, if you're killing too yeah. hard and you're not able to read that, you're going to become toxic anyway. So you can't just physically detox, right? Yeah. Yes. Also, if your mindset is trash the whole yeah. time, mm -hmm. you're not going to get anywhere. Right. right. Like, right. yeah, and that's what I'm learning is like, it's all... And literally the Lord literally told me this the other, like a few weeks ago, or maybe months ago, it was like, he's like, you can't heal the whole by only treating in part. And so he was like, I'm learning on my healing journey. It's, it's all of it. It's mental, it's spiritual, it's emotional, and it's not neglecting any and all of it. And to your point of like, if you don't pass to your point, if you don't pass that one step, you're going to have to go back. It's like, if you don't learn that lesson or if you hit that step, like you're going to go back. It's like, I didn't learn it. So it's like, I had to go back. I had to go back to my body and it's, I feel like in my health journey, like it's been a 12 year journey now. It's like, I've tried, I've tried everything. I've tried to do one thing at a time or so like, I just focus on the physical and like, I don't even address the trauma or I just focus on the emotional and I don't do anything to like, you know, help get rid of it, get at the bacteria and the pathogen. Just, just like, I'm come to this point in my journey. I'm like, you need to do all of it you don't have to do all of it full throttle, but like, if you can do a little piece, all of it, like it all matters. Cause like, to your point, Katie, like you cannot heal. If you have a toxic brain telling you you're never going to get there, you're right. not going to make it through this protocol. You're too weak, or this thing's going to destroy you, or you're going to have it forever. It's just like, you will, you'll never get out of that pit. If you'll never be able to heal, if those are the thoughts that continue to berate your mind. And that's where I've also learned to your point, like um, rich, like you also need support. Like I've come to learn, like I would not be where I am right now if I did not have emotional support, like, and there were moments where I didn't have any and I, or even like in real life. And that's where a lot of times social media has been my saving grace. in the sense that like, if I couldn't connect with anyone in my real life, I knew there was other people on social media. Like I've made relationships with people on social media. Like I've, I've extremely, strong relationships like some of my best friends I haven't even met in real life <laughs> but only on FaceTime because not only do you need I mean you need people you need support like to go through all this box to do all this like you need it mentally you need the emotional support you need the yeah you need community it's also a big part of it that I've learned that you also need going through this so can you one of the best people in the community talking about mindset and give me your thoughts about the mindset and the skill set because that's the, that's the other piece that we're, we're sort of starting to develop here from a from a you know from a framework standpoint you have to have the right mindset and the right skill set when you're going through rehabilitation um, prehabilitation right mindset and skill set when you're when you're assisting your body with the you know the killing phase the right set, uh, mindset and skill set for each uh, phase so can you talk to us about uh, mindset and the importance of mindset and recognizing that if you're, if you don't have the proper mindset, you physically can't heal because if you're in fight or flight, then your, then your body cannot physiologically heal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said it right there and that's like a pretty solid summary. I think that, you know, you have to have this guiding belief of the desired outcome, right? Like in, in, when I teach in IGC, our new students, the first thing we teach them is a project plan. And the way you do a project plan is you figure out what and by when, what do you want? And by when do you want it? You can't just have what, right? You, you have to have a timeline around it. There has to be like a container. And so 
when we go on a healing journey, like we have to actually know that we want to heal. And when we want that for ourselves, if the expectation is that it's immediate, like that's not the right mindset either. Right. But if the expectation is never, that's certainly not going to get you anywhere. And then when we start developing a project plan, we do it backwards. So we start with like the wish fulfilled. We start with like the desire, the, you know, the, the end result, right? So we have to know what the end result is. And then we have to hold that in our minds and in our hearts as the intention. And I, I think that, you know, so many people just like don't believe that they could heal or don't believe that it's possible for them. Or they say, oh, it's possible for that person, but not me. And I know that I know who we're talking to on this podcast. I know, you know, who the community is, but it's not that different from like someone saying, oh, well, that person can find their partner and get married, but I can, or that person can get pregnant after years of infertility, but I can't, or that person can, you know, have this kind of career or make this much money, but I can't you have to ditch that mindset. Like you have to actually know and believe in your heart that even though you don't know how, and that's the part that we surrender to God or life or the universe or whatever you believe in, like we're not supposed to know how, right? We're supposed to just start with the belief and the desire, but the belief and the desire has to be so juicy and desirable that it's actually worth fighting for, even when we've fought so hard. I mean, I think so many Lyme warriors are just so tired mm -hmm. and I get that. Like, I really, really get that, you know, and I know that you get it, Dina, like you were in a wheelchair. I was bedridden. Like we get it, but it, it's almost more tiring to believe that life is just over and this is how it's always going to be. And you know, you start finding these examples. I mean, you've shared that you have best friends who you haven't even met in person yet, but mm -hmm. you start finding these examples of people who maybe aren't fully healed, but they have the right mindset, right? They've got their head in a way that like the, the likelihood of them getting there immediately increases because they start to see the people and the resources that are positive that they can pull in to help them on their healing journey. I mean, it's, it's sort of just like, you know, what's adding to your life versus what's, what's taking away, right? It's kind of a simple math equation. Like if I want to get here, if I need to get to net 100 or whatever it is, and I'm at, you know, negative hundred, I can't take any more negative. Like there's literally no space for any more negativity or toxicity in my life. I can only build. And of course, in the healing process, you're going to go backwards, right? Like you're literally going to like perks or you're going to get in a relationship with someone who is, is not a good, you know, force in your life. who's not a good influence. Right. And sometimes when we're sick, we're really, really vulnerable. Like I, I look at, I, I see it as like, we're porous, right. We're like a sponge. Like it's so easy to soak up something that's not good for you, but we have to be really rigorous about um, this works in my life. This doesn't, we have to become very, very discerning. I think that's the best word is like, we have to develop this skill of discernment. And so if we can have this mindset of possibility and desire, and this is what I want for myself, 
and we can develop the skill of discernment. This belongs in my life. This doesn't, I have space for this. I don't have space for this. Like, I love you, but I can't right now. Right. Knowing that have like allowing ourselves to be advocates for ourselves. I think it helps the healing, right? It helps us rebuild trust with ourselves. It helps us get back into our bodies. Eventually we have to go see, you know, a, a traditional doctor again, right? Like we have to find healing in this process. And the way to do that is I think, you know, centering ourselves with knowing what our standards are. So then why don't you talk to us a little bit about what it was like for you when the, there were a lot of people in the world telling you, you are not going to get any better. It's okay to be sick. This is where you are. And yeah. what impact that mindset had on your ability to heal? Because that's really what, what, what Katie's getting to here. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, I mean, you get to a point, you just get like so discouraged or so many people are saying, you're like, okay, well, you know, if this is going to be my forever, then I'm just going to accept it and make the best of it. But this is also where I say like, there's just, there was always something in me, even it was like the faintest bit of hope of like, no, like, I don't want to believe that. It was just like, even when I tried to accept it, it was just like, you know, I was like, Ugh. and then to your point of like, you, I would see people on social media, like actually like getting better. I'm like, okay, wait, but like, what are they doing? Right. Or it's like to, to your point, like having those people in your life that have actually healed you, you're just like, well, wait they're healing. Why can't I? Or it's just like, they got there. Why can't I? Or like, I literally say that because like I'm single and I'm like, I see these people getting there, like finding their person. I'm just like, well, if it can happen for them, why can't it, it, why can't it happen to me? And like, so I think, yeah, I got to a point where it's just like, I, I had to, I thought I had to accept it, but there was always something in me that was like, like just didn't want to and then seeing other people heal I was like no I held on to those stories of hope of like no like they're healing they're doing it like this is what it did like I just I'm gonna like do that to her it gave me hope of like no like you can heal from this like and you don't have to live like this your whole life and so yeah I was using seeing other people and their stories that like gave me hope too like that like just like kind of like came in agreement with like what I really hoped and believed was to be true. And I believe that, like, I believe we can all heal. And to your point of like, we have these, this medical community, we have so many things stacked against us that are like, how the heck do you heal? And it comes down to like, I think we all have that in us. If we're really honest, there is this, there is this desire to believe that we want to heal. I know there are some people that believe like you can't, but it's just like, I think if we're honest, we all want to believe that we can and we want that to be true and it is true because we have these stories these amazing stories of people that have in many different ways and that's where it also comes down to like what we've been talking about like trusting yourself knowing discernment of like okay what do I need to do for me to heal like I know for me this year it's like okay you need to start doing trauma work it was just like it's listening to that voice in you trusting your gut of like what's the next step and I always have people ask me like well, what should I do and I'm just like what is your gut telling you? And if you don't know, it's like, we have to get back in tune to that. Like all of our bodies are so different. Like, and our bodies will tell us like what it does and doesn't want to do, which way it doesn't like, doesn't want to go. Cause at the end of the day, no matter what you do, it's just like, it's you and your conviction that's going to keep you going. And it's just like, if you don't have that personal conviction, like you're not going to want to keep with the protocol. You're not going to want to keep taking that supplement unless you know, like, 
this is what I know is the next step for me. This is what I know my body's telling me. This is what I maybe hear God or the universe telling me. Like for me, it's just like, I know I'm doing this because like God told me and like it, but it's like at the end of the day, I can't, I don't have a doctor rely or like, we can't rely on doctors to tell us. We can't rely on these things. Like it really does come down to us, our own personal conviction and trusting that gut. But like, like we talked about this whole topic, like when we have such disassociation, we don't even know where to begin with that or where, where to even start. Yeah, so, so one of the challenges that we have, of course, is we have this binary brain, right? And on the one side of the coin, we're never going to get better if we can't, as Katie so brilliantly pointed out, if we don't create this vision of, and this very clear and powerful and multi-sensory vision of what we want and why we want it, then of course our brain is not going to take us there. But the challenge, of course, of having this binary brain that we have, where we'll either be in the sympathetic or parasympathetic mm -hmm. uh, state, is that when we're looking at this place where we want to be, and it's and and it's and it's a really rich place and it's a really powerful place, then we start to feel inadequate and it starts to become triggering for us because we're not there now. Right. right. And that's the balance that we have to strike here, right? Where we have to give ourselves permission to see ourselves as moving towards that, yeah. uh, the, the power of yet, not the power of not being there. Right. Mm -hmm. And when we, when we have that mindset that again, Katie just, she always blows away how smart she is. We are setting out this, this very clear picture of you as the person you want to be. And then setting time parameters for when you're going to get there, but also being kind to yourself and recognizing that you have to find a model and you have to find a plan. And that's where we can get, I think, the, the positive elements of, of social media, the way you have, Dana, where you're seeing other people uh, get better and you're looking at how they're doing it. And you're wondering whether or not perhaps there's a process that they have that you can borrow that can get you to that place but you don't allow it to be a triggering experience where you're not paralyzed and certainly not able to listen to your body. So Dana, talk to me about how, what you think about that outline that both Katie did much better than I did. And I'm now outlining for you where you have this dual process of having a clear vision for where you want to be, having a why and a timeline, but also being, you know, sh showing yourself the grace that you need to be able to get there and not be triggered by not having, not being there yet. You actually depicted that so beautifully or like so well, because that is, that has been like my journey as of late. And I think it's so many journeys. I, I would call it like the in-between, you know, the in-between of like, you're not where you were, but you're not where you want to be. And it's just like that tension of just like, I don't want to be here. It's just like, I want to be there. And it's just like, I, and I keep hearing that word over and over again in the past like few months. It's like the in-between It's like, we're always in between something. It's just like, someone like to your point earlier um i think we we're talking about like what people who like i have a friend she would deal with like infertility it's just like that in between like we're all in some type of whether it's healing from lyme wanting to have a baby like that in between of tension of like okay well this is where i want to be it's not where i'm at yet or it's like this is what i know is true but i'm here and this doesn't look like it's ever going to happen or whatever and it's to your point of like having the faith to believe like this is possible and like not letting it and that's where I always say like it takes so much mental fortitude to get yourself to believe like 
you're going to make it and you're going to be okay to keep that mindset that like, this is your future. This can happen. This is possible. The mental fortitude it takes to continue to like connect to that hope and to connect to that belief is what astounds me. Honestly, like in the Lyme community, people that continue, like we continue on treatment to continue to like, to believe for that. Like, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm amazed. And I read, I read, um, I read the body keeps the store, the score recently, um, book blew my mind, changed my life. And even the therapist said it was like, it's like the human spirit. And like what he learned most from trauma patients is just like their inability to like, never give up. And like, that just takes so much strength and mental fortitude. And so that's what I feel like it's the thing that's like kept me this whole journey of like, just keeping, like you're saying, Katie, like that vision of mine of like, this is my future. I know I'm going to get there one day and just continuing to remind myself and like that's where you have to have a positive mindset but then you also have to have community when your mind plays tricks on you like I have people that are on call for me when I'm like hey like when I'm going through like assisting or you know detoxing I'm like hey you know like my mind's gonna play tricks on me my body's gonna tell me I'm not healing but I was like I'm gonna call you and when my mind tries to tell me different like you need to be the voice of reason outside of my head to be like no you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. You're just in a flare. You're, you're, you're healing. It just doesn't feel like it right now. And that's where I think it's twofold. Like you have to have like, you know, that conviction, that mental fortitude, that gut, that intrinsic thing inside of you, but you also need community to be that voice of reason outside of like outside of your mind when it really does try to play tricks on you. And it's not even your mind, you know, like when you, we know when you're getting rid of things, killing things like it, it, it like, you know, it messes up with your mind, like not even like, um, on purpose, you know, and that's where it's like my, in my suggestion or like my advice for people would be like, again, and if you don't have anyone in your life, what I do is like, I have people on social media. I'm like, Hey, I've never met you. Like we've never met in real life, but they're the people that'll call like, Hey, I'm going to need you. And I have people like on call for that. I think that is also, that would be like something I would advise <laughs> like to find those people, whether they're physically in your life, or if you can find them digitally, there are some great people in the Lyme community that, cause I know you believe it too. And you believe it rich and Katie, like we all believe that healing is possible and it'll happen for us all. We just have to be on our own journey to figure out how to get there. But there are people that will support you along the way. And it's crucial. Well, let, let's, let's talk about another word that Katie talked about, which is discernment. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and being discerning, because I wish everyone on social media were um, manifesting the way you are articulating the manifestation mm-hmm. day, because there are some people that are sick and there yeah. are some people that don't believe they can get better. And yeah. then they're the people that are, quite frankly, attacking people like Katie um, mm-hmm. and calling her an ableist. Right. And uh, so I, I think we have to be careful about yeah. what, we, what we do here on social media. I mean, the other thing that I, I, I do, do want to get both of you to give me some input on is when you're seeing groups of people all doing the same treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Either we're bio-individuals and we are on our own journey and we're on our own path and we're at different stages of, of our emotional and physiological journey, or we're not, Right. So how could we all be doing the same treatment at the same time when we're all bio-individuals and we're at different stages in our journey? So, you know, I, I think there is a dangerous side of social media. And I think both this sort of ableist mindset um, or, or maybe disableist mindset, as well as this, hey, we're all doing the same treatment at the same time, 
is always concerning to me when I see it. So I, I, I wonder what your thoughts are on sort of the dangerous or the dark side of social media. Yeah, I can speak a little bit to that in the sense that I remember before I found the community I have now, I remember like not having like any Lyme community. I was, I was new to it a few years ago. So I was like, oh, what is Lyme? What does all this mean? You know, and I went to Facebook and, you know, joined like some Lyme groups. And I will say like my first experience with those groups, I mean, it was heavy. I mean, heavy stuff. I mean, you have people on there and my heart just goes out because I, I, I understand everything they say, like I relate with where they're like, I feel like I'm dying, like I'm not going to make it. But it got to a point where like I had to, for my own mental health, I was like, I cannot follow groups where it's just like not doomsday because it, it's truly heartbreaking because you feel for these people because you have the same emotions and feelings, but like to see it day in and day out, it, 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 it it starts instilling fear in you. Like it literally like starts planting itself in you. And to your point, Richard, like discernment of like, it got to the point where I was like, this isn't good for me and my mental health. Cause it's literally putting fear into me, like fear of like, Oh my God, what if I do die? What if this is, does kill me? It's just, and it's just, it's like that balance or it's hard. Cause it's like, you feel and you understand you relate and you get it, but also it's like, this is not good. Like to your point of like, we were saying earlier about then you become the environment you're in and like that was not a good environment so I've had to learn to like put up boundaries I guess is what you're what I'm getting at is like that discernment of like what I can and can't handle like even earlier to our earlier conversation when you were saying like the real like when you were saying Yolanda was like the housewives was like toxic I get to the point sometimes where like I'm watching a reality tv show and if there's too much toxicity, I have to turn it off because I'm like, I can't handle the drama. Like, it's just like, I can feel it <laughs> coming on my body. I'm like, I can't. And that's where I've just had to learn, like, your, I guess, like discernment boundaries of like my body, my mind, my emotions can't handle that. It's too much. It's too fear induced. And, and it's, I think it just comes down to, again, like what you can and can't handle, what your boundaries are, having discernment for like your own healing journey. Like what is going to, like to your point, like what's going to benefit you, Katie, like what you said earlier, like what is good and healing for you. And my heart goes out to like all these people that believe different, like, cause I was there too. Like, I remember being in Western medicine and thinking like, this is it. Like, this is, you know, this is going to be my forever. I've seen these medications that make it worse. It's just, um, and everyone's on their own journey and I don't, but I, I just know for me, like I've come to the belief that like you can't heal because I've seen people do it. So, so can you give, give us your thoughts uh, about, um, you know, the way our brain gets us to um, where we want to be, um, but it will get us to a good place unless we are um, envisioning that good place. If we're not setting these clear outcomes for ourselves and how important is that, uh, is that for us so that our brain can get us there both consciously and subconsciously and get us the tools that we need to take the steps to get there without of course being triggered into paralysis because, because we're feeling, um, you know, we're feeling inadequate because we're not there yet. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really about two things, which is possibility and then evidence and when it comes to possibility like we have to believe that 
something is possible for us, right? And that requires in the in certain moments, not ignoring evidence, but understanding that there might not be evidence, right? There might not be evidence that we can have the thing that we want to have, which in this case is healing. However, there is evidence out in the world. There are people who have healed. And there's certainly, you know, this also this aspect of putting aside negative evidence or evidence that shows otherwise. So like if it got to the point for me where it was like, my hypothesis is that I believe I can heal. I think that maybe it is possible for me. It might not be, but I think that maybe it is, right? And so I had to believe that. I had to establish that that was my hypothesis. And then I had to start collecting evidence in my own life, right? So that might be like, I feel good for like an hour a day. That is the hour that I feel good. If I feel good for one hour, maybe I can feel good for two hours. If I feel good for two hours, maybe I can feel good for a day. If I feel good for a day, maybe I could feel good for a whole week, right? And we know in the live community that like, this is very hard because you feel really up and down and that plays into people not believing you because, well, you had a lot of energy yesterday. You were able to go out, you stayed out late, you partied, you did this, you went to dinner, you, right? But that's not who I am today, right? And so there's a lot of ups and downs. And I think that the key with Lyme in particular is knowing that in the downs, there's going to be an up and remembering the ups. Right. And so for me, it was like about gathering all of this evidence that I was going to feel, to be able to feel good and that feeling good and, and healing would be possible for me. But like you said, there, there has to be so much mental fortitude. Like I remember like literally feeling like I was physically like, physically moving my brain to focus on certain things and to ignore other things. And I do think that it it's like a muscle, right? When you go to the gym, if you haven't been lifting weights or if you just do arms and you never do legs or whatever, you're gonna have some muscles that are strong and some muscles that are weak. I think we have to think about our brain the exact same way. If you focus on the negative, that's what's gonna be strengthened. If you focus on the positive, while detoxing or getting rid of or ignoring or putting to the side the evidence that you don't want, then inevitably you're going to get stronger. Like it's sort of impossible for it not to happen. It's certainly not going to be perfect along the way, but that's how I look at it. I right, see so you, you, you have to be prepared to walk in the dark right? You're yeah. not going to be able to see every step in the process. Each one of us is an individual. Each one of us has a different set of microbes in our system. Each one of us has had the microbes in our system for a longer period of time. So it's going to be a really individualized journey. But as you're walking in the dark, and as you take each step forward, you're going to get that hour where you're feeling better, or the two hours where you're feeling better. And each one of these, each one of these positive signs and of course, now reading your body signals and getting that positive feedback from your onboard diagnostic system puts you in a position where you're getting closer and closer to mm -hmm. the Wizard of Oz, right? You're, you're getting there, but it's one step at a time and you can't see the whole path forward, which is a scary and lonely, scary and lonely path. But 
it is a path forward. And, you know, what, one of the things that I, I think is just so cool about, you know, doing the podcast with cool people like you is that we've gotten to see hundreds of people follow their own path to yeah. healing. Yeah. Hundreds. And, you know, and, and you can hear, you know, now I think we have over 300 episodes up, most two hours long, uh, where you will have, you know, six or 700 hours of people sharing with you the steps they took so that you can model those steps and understand what that process is the way the two of you are now. So, so Dana, why don't you talk to us now about the beautiful elements of this journey on how this has been, how this has been a sort of purifying process for you where all of these social and educational and cultural, um, you know, uh, things were stripped off of you. So you now are a pure version of yourself. You understand who you are, you understand what your purpose is, and how going through this journey has helped you uh, to get there. Yeah, I think I touched on it a little bit earlier when I was like, one of the biggest gifts I've gotten this past year is just coming back into my body, being disassociated for so long. I mean, and I think... Yeah, just coming back into my body, learning to love my body and like love me again has been, I mean, I'm like, I don't know if I want to say this. Like it was all worth it, you know? It's just like, I don't know. But to get that back has been just such a blessing being able to, again, like love me, love my body, get back in tune with it, know what it's saying what and how to take care of it. Um, that's been one of the biggest blessings. Also, again, in this past year, I've just done a lot of like trauma therapy work and it's just like, oh my gosh, if I wouldn't have gone through this, I probably never would have, you know, unless you go through like hard things like this, nothing really would have like made me like reflect back on, you know, childhood and everything I've gone through. And honestly, I can say now, like, and this is vulnerable and personal is like, I remember growing up, like I was just so scared to be like a mom or to have kids. Cause I was like, I don't, I don't like, I'm still like a messed up human being. Like, like, how am I going to have kids with like, where it's like, you can't teach someone when you don't know. So I was like, well, how am I going to teach kids how to be, you know, like feel safe and feel loved. And it's like, I don't even know what that feels like. I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't, I can't even, I don't know how to teach myself, but like, I'm learning what that looks like. and feels like now to where it's like, I'm not scared to be a spouse, a mom, because like I know what it looks like to cultivate like a healthy safe environment have healthy communication to have a positive relationship with people around you with your body to not be scared of things like I'm I'm still going through like healing like different fears and just again like being able to be able to meet be me stand my own not have to seek other people's approval and like I guess what we've been talking about like the dark side of social media man i mean you can get i mean you can get so much criticism i mean it takes courage to put yourself out there for criticism and just continue to share and be vulnerable and open that something that i'm even going through now is just like getting to the point where like i can just stand on my own two feet and be like this is me for better for worse i'm comfortable with me i'm happy with me god loves me as me there's no shame and condemnation around anything and we can have disagreements and like it's okay like to disagree and love and to and for like criticism for things not to kind of like take me out like 
because it is hard, you know, just being vulnerable and open on social media and not letting, you know, the criticism just literally rock you to your core. It's just, I'm developing that muscle to have like strong conviction of like, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, or it's like, it rubs you wrong. I'm so sorry. There's still love there, but like, we can agree to disagree or whatever. Like I'm growing into that person now. And that is one of the biggest blessings that I am. I've received and am receiving the, like, again, just the self-awareness, the going through life, my life history. Like I wouldn't have gone through all that. And then just the knowledge that I'm getting, or I have gotten on like how to live a healthy lifestyle to your point of like maintenance. When you get to that fourth stage, like going through all this has taught me about living in healthy environments, not just physically, not just mentally, but like physically, like in the diet you need, should eat the toxins you shouldn't put on your body, like with beauty products, like going through all of this, my whole Lyme journey has just taught me how to live a very healthy, holistic life. And I'm getting to the point where it's like, I'm not going to run from it anymore. I'm going to lean into it because it's in that tension and it's in the pressure that like, if you run from it, you're going to be run from, running from it your whole life. There is no life without tension. There is no life without good and bad. So it's just like, I'm now learning to live a life where it's just like, I can, I have the resiliency to do that. I have the capacity where like I didn't for it. Yeah. I'm learning how to live that life where it's like holistic and I know what to do for my body, my family and the world around me. And that's just such, that's a really big, that's some of the biggest blessings. <laughs> that, is, that is unbelievably beautiful. And, nice. uh, and, and I think that should take us to the final question, which my guest co-host always gets asked. Katie yeah. now gets to ask you the final question of the podcast. Do I have to ask your question or do you want to make mine? Whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, my final question is, if someone's going through this journey that you have been going through, that you're still on, what is the one thing that you would tell them to hold on to hope throughout the way? I would tell them, don't give up that little, that thing inside of you that wants to believe it. Like it's true. And it's real. Like hold on to other people's stories. Like those, like those beacons of hope, like it's possible. But just tell them like, don't give up. I would want to tell them like, you're not crazy at all. It's not in your head. You're not making it up. And also I would want to tell someone that it's not their fault. Like, I think I believed that for a really long time that like I made myself sick or it's my fault that I'm sick or I did this to me or I'm making myself sick or like, and that's a hundred percent not the truth. Like you didn't make yourself sick. This is not your fault. And there is healing and there is hope and just like, don't give up. You're going to make it hold on to other people's stories. And like, you can trust and believe that little small faint. Mm. little little whisper or like little spark of hope in you that wants to believe that this is true it because it is and you can like you said you can look for the evidence and it's there and hold on to that when everything else wants to tell you like the opposite like your mind your symptoms it's just like you like you said it takes mental fortitude to just keep going back and back to that but it is a muscle and like you will get there but I would just tell someone like don't do not give up and believe that little small faint voice in you that's like, it's possible because it is. 
So uh, Dana, I can't thank you enough for taking so much time out of your life to uh, help <laughs> our community learn so much of, uh, of, of what they can do to heal. And, and as always, Katie, uh, just a brilliant young woman who is always uh, unbelievably insightful and certainly a much better co-host than Matt Sabatella. Crazy. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dana. This was so great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blessing. Thank you so much for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dana Papadopoulos. I hope you loved it as much as we do. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dana, which you definitely do, please visit her Instagram page at Dana Renata. That's D-A-N-A-R-E-N-A-T-A. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please, please share it with your friends. People need to hear this. So use the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that's inspired by information that's been provided by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website and check it out at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to see us offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to get automatic updates for our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank our community for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a moment to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you so much for listening.